0: All right, so with that said, we're walking through the book of Mark. Uh, If you have your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be pushing now. Uh, Jesus has made it to his destination, right? The whole uh, kind of middle section of Mark, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Last week, he made it to Jerusalem, and we had kind of the triumphant entry, right? He comes in to great shouts of acclamation, and then it all fizzles out. Everyone disappears. Jesus goes into the temple. He looks around the temple. He makes a serious accounting for of what's going on in the temple, and then he leaves town and he goes to Bethany and spends the night in Bethany. So now we're moving to day 2. This would be Monday after Palm Sunday. If you're there in Mark chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 12. I'm going to read a little bit today and then we're going to break it down. Uh, after we read the passage. So let's start in verse 12 together. It says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, that's Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And And his disciples heard it. And they were seeking for a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out to the city, or went out of the city. And as they passed by uh, in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, And have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and be thrown into the sea, and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes uh, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. All right, we're going to stop there. So uh, this story is kind of, uh, Mark is really well known for doing this. It's a sandwich story, right? You have kind of bookends about a fig tree and then you have a middle that doesn't seem to fit, right? If you just read this story straight through, Mark's talking about this fig tree and Jesus is like, no one's going to eat from you again. And the story ends and the fig tree is dead, right? And that seems like one coherent story. And then just like shoved in the middle of the fig tree story, it's the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, right? And we like this story. It's one of, our, one of our favorite stories of Jesus. It's angry Jesus. We don't get angry Jesus very often in the Bible, right? And so when we see it, we're like, hey, look, he gets angry too, right? That's kind of nice that he's not just always this. Sometimes he has emotions and righteous indignation, and he take, takes action, and we like that guy. I like that guy uh, uh, a lot. And so I, I look forward to this passage of Scripture. But it's just in the middle of something else. And so the question, those of us who read the Bible and read it critically, the question you need to ask when you run into this is like, why did Mark shove this story in the middle of the fig tree story? Right. And you could say, well, it's because it's chronological, right? So like in the morning, the fig tree was cursed and then Jesus went and did what he was going to do. And then he comes back like, you know, the next morning and the fig tree's dead. And there could be something to the fact that it's chronological, but really Mark does not tell a chronological story, right? The entire book of Mark is not meant to be, this is the first thing that happened, and this is the second thing that happened. Mark is telling a story to talk about who Jesus is. And so he pulls stories from the three years of Jesus' ministry, and he pushes them together because he's telling a story that he wants people to understand the point of what he's saying. Now, there's a reason that Mark shoves the cleansing of the temple in the middle, of it, and that's what we're going to look at today, is why is this story shoved in the middle of it, and what does that mean for you and for me, and how are we going to deal with what Jesus is doing there? But we start with this fig tree. Right, this fig tree, this is one of the most difficult passages in Scripture. Um, there's a, I think it's Bertrand Russell, who's an atheist, says this passage right here is the reason uh, that he, has, he can't trust Jesus Christ. Right, this passage, because Jesus walks up to a fig tree, and he curses it, and the fig tree dies, but the fig tree wasn't doing anything wrong. That's how, how Mr. Russell sees it, right? Because the fig tree shouldn't have had figs on it anyway, it, raised, right? it wasn't the season, for figs right right now it's squash season I know this because I get squash coming at me from all the people who have gardens right I mean it's, it's squash season right now but you know in like three months when your squash plants are are all wilted up and dead and you've probably already dug them out if you just left them there and I went up to that plant and got mad at it because it didn't have a squash on it You'd be like, Matt, I think you've got some expectation problems. Right, You've you've got a little issue there with expectation. So we have to deal with how is Jesus cursing this tree that didn't seem to do anything wrong. And and, and I think that we need to deal with that uh, honestly from the front end. Now, I'm not a horticulturist. Okay, Uh, I don't pretend to know a lot about plants and trees and figs and whatever. But apparently the fig trees that live in the ancient Near East, from what I've read and what I've studied... Or uh, they, they produce um, their fruit first and then their leaves second. That's kind of the order of operation for fig trees over there. Uh, it's different than most other trees where you get a full leaves right. Like I think of, like pecan trees because I like pecans right. You get the full leaves that come out and then when the leaves start to fall, then the, the pecans are ripe and, and, and they're ready to come down and be turned into pie right or or into sugary stuff right. And so so this is this is what we think of. But fig trees the opposite. The fruit comes out, and then you have the leaves that come following the fruit. And so Jesus sees a tree in full leaf, and so what that means is it's already produced its crop. It's already produced its crop, it's already done what it's supposed to do. But these fig trees produce something else as well. So they produce full ripe figs, and they produce like, there's another word for it, uh, it's like basically an unripe fig. It's just a green little knobby fruit. Uh, And so the thought is, at least uh, the, the the kind of the traditional thought of what Jesus is looking for. He isn't full on figs. He's looking for these little knobby, fleshy fruits, and they're in various degrees of ripeness. So Jesus goes to this tree that's full of leaves, and it should be full of these little like knobby, not-quite-fig things on it. And he goes to it, and he looks through it, and he doesn't see any on it, and he curses it because it looks like it should have something, but it doesn't. Right? It has all the trappings of what, what, what should be a, a, a healthy little like snack food for him and it has nothing there at all. And so that's what Jesus is looking for most likely when he goes into the fig tree. He leaves there after he curses. says, no one's going to eat fruit from you again. He leaves there. He goes to the temple, and he deals with the, the issue going on in the temple. Now, I don't know about you, but but I have a picture of the temple in my mind, right? And you have the Holy of Holies, which is a pretty tiny area. And then you have the holy place, which is where the priests could go. And it was a, a medium-tiny area, smaller than this room for sure, right? And then you have kind of like the uh, like the... Temple for Jewish men, or the courtyard for Jewish men, and then you have uh, the courtyard of the Gentiles. But I didn't know how big this thing was, right? Now, I've never been to Israel, so I don't have a full concept of space in my mind. But the t- courtyard of the Gentiles, where Jesus went, where all this uh, animal trade was going on, this big fair, festival thing was going on, is about 35 acres, right? So, those of us who are thinking of like land, like that's a big chunk of land on top of the temple mound that's dedicated to this. And what was going on there inside of this courtyard for the Gentiles, anyone could go in there, um, and there was a a marketplace that was set up. And it was set up because it was Passover, and as we've said before, during Passover, the city of Jerusalem would grow about five times uh, its size. And so the city was swelled, and it was massive, and everyone was offering sacrifices um, for the Passover festival. Josephus wrote in like 60 A.D., ...saying that there was over 225,000 lambs that were sacrificed for the Passover celebration. right, 225,000 lambs were sacrificed in the year 60 for the Passover celebration. That's an insane amount of animals. And you can imagine how how busy that square was. Now imagine you're a Jewish person, you're coming to Jerusalem, you're going to stay with family, you're heading into town... ...and you know you're going to go to the temple and you have to have a sacrifice to give but you aren't going to bring your animal across the country for sacrifice. So what you say is, when I get there, I'll buy my sacrifice, and I'll I'll turn it in, and and I'll I'll sacrifice the animal there. And that's what the courtyard was set up for, was to service, uh, ostensibly, was to service Jewish people coming um, to, to get their animals to sacrifice on their behalf for the Passover celebration. And so this was a big, big thing, and it should have been kind of like a holy ritual, Right, because the Passover is the holiest day uh, in, in the Jewish life. Right, It was the day that God spared the Israelites from the wrath of, of the avenging angel in the book of Exodus that led them out of uh, uh, you know, captivity in, in Egypt and got them freedom ultimately 40 years later uh, in the Promised Land. Passover was a big foundational event in their lives. And so we have this, uh, this big celebration. You come into town, you don't have an animal, and so you go to the courtyard of the Gentiles because you have to buy your animal there. And so you go there, and an animal that would cost a quarter now costs $4. This was the markup, by the way. It was 16 times markup. Right, like we have a, we have like the price gouging issues, right? Like if, if there's a major hurricane, you'll you'll see like water all of a sudden a case of water go on sale at some gas station for like thirty five dollars, and you're like that seems out out of, out of control, right? How do you do that? And then the attorney general gets involved, and those people get in trouble for price gouging. But in this day and age, they didn't care, right? In that in that courtyard, those people who were selling the animals there were doing everything they could to maximize their revenue. ...from people who had to offer a sacrifice. And so they held them hostage to high prices. And it was kind of like a a mafia-like cabal going on inside the temple courtyard. You couldn't couldn't sacrifice an animal that wasn't from there if you were from out of town. And any animal you bought there was going to be more expensive than it should be. And not only that, the money that you have in your pocket... ...they won't take to buy an animal for a sacrifice... And so you go up to the guy who's got the sheep or the goat or the ox or the bird that you're going to buy. And you say, hey, I'd like to buy a pair of birds. And he says, oh, that'll be $4. And you're like, okay. And you pull out four you know, U.S. greenbacks. And he says, oh, I can't take that money here. That money is, is, is uh, pagan money. You have to go turn that money in over at the change window. And so you'll take your $4 and you'll go over to the guy at the change window. And you'll say, hey, I need, I need to, to get 4 bucks of temple money to go buy these uh, birds over here. And he's like, oh, great. And so you hand him $4, and he hands you a dollar back. And you're like, hold on a second. I-, I-, I gave you $4. I need to buy a bird. They cost $4. Why am I only getting a dollar back? He's like, you know, exchange rates and big economy. You don't really understand like, macroeconomics of what's going on here. Right? And then they just kind of abuse them. Right? And so when you trade your money in, you lose about four times of the value of your money. And then when you go buy an animal, you pay four times more for the animal than you should have. So a $4 animal, which should be a 25 cent animal, costs you $16 to buy when you're done with the system. And everybody there is in on the scam. They know that they have two weeks for the Passover. Right? Two weeks of this massive big business, and so they get every dollar they can. If you were to come to Jerusalem on a, like off-season, I don't know what off-season is for Jerusalem travel, but if you were to come whenever there's not a high holy festival going on, you'd be able to exchange your money at cost. You'd be able to buy animals at the price that was the going rate. Right, But because there was an opportunity to make money, they exploited them Aggressively at this time. Guys, uh, the church has a history of doing this, right? Of taking a position of power, exploiting it, and using it to its benefit. I think about about 500 years ago, right? There was a guy named Martin Luther, and he was walking around over in Germany, and he saw some things going on that were not attractive for the church to be doing. And at this time, the Catholic Church was the church, right? It was the only church available. And there was guys going around saying, hey, do you want your loved ones to ever get to heaven because I can accelerate the process. Right? They're dead now, but I can get them there quicker. So if you'll give me a little bit of money, I'll write you a little piece of paper and, and, and put the Pope's little stamp on it, and your loved one will immediately go to heaven. Right? They won't be stuck in purgatory. They won't be stuck kind of waiting out all their venial sins. And that, that, that'll take, you know, tens of thousands of years in this kind of like middle state that they have in Catholic theology. Right. All of that's going to go away. Just pay us a little money. Just pay me a little money and then we'll be able, be able to be able to get this done. And what happened in that moment was Martin Luther went crazy. Right. He, he finally put it together, read the book of Romans. He's like, this is wrong. Right? Salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, not by works, not by acts, not by purchasing indulgences for the good of yourself, right? And so Martin Luther threw off the entirety of the Catholic hierarchy, and the Catholics had a major revolution afterwards, right? We, we talk about the Protestant Reformation, um, because we come out of that in the, in the Baptist strain. But, you know, the Catholics had a major reformation that happened right after that as well, right? It's called the Counter-Reformation, right? And so a lot of the things that Martin Luther was really upset about the Catholic Church doing why the you know, Vatican City is covered in gold everywhere. Right? They, the Catholics were like, whoa, hold on, maybe we've pushed too far. Right? And the leadership at the top said, maybe we've pushed too far. And they pulled back, and there was a major reformation inside the Catholic Church, a needed reformation inside the Catholic Church that took place. Jesus comes into the temple, he sees the same sort of thing going on in the first century. He sees religious leaders, the people in charge of the temple mound, exploiting people. And holding over the the, 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 you know, the gifts of God and saying, you will never get the gift of God in your life. You will never taste the goodness of God in your life unless you offer this sacrifice. And you won't offer this sacrifice unless we sell it to you at a price that we need. And that's why Jesus went in there and started going crazy on people, right? We read it, and he's like, and one of the, it's like he makes a whip, right? And he's whipping animals and and, and getting them out of there, right? Jesus looks at what's happening. He he looked the day before, right? He examined what had happened the day before, and he said, I'm going to come back and take care of this. So he comes back, and and he starts cleaning out the animals and running animals out of there and taking money changers and throwing their tables over and making kind of a scene in this massive courtyard, disrupting business a little bit, as it were. He does all of this because he has zeal for what is right. right. He says this place that we're in, this temple, was supposed to be right, a, a place of prayer for all the nations. Right? It was supposed to be a place that everyone could come from around the world and see who God is. Right? We built this building, we built this mammoth structure. It was ornate, it was well designed, it was made to reflect the image of God. And you guys have turned this good thing into something else. It looks like one thing, but it's something altogether different. Exactly like the fig tree. fig tree looked like it would have something, but it didn't have any. Jesus says, you look, this temple looks from the outside appearances. It, it purports to be this thing that draws people into a relationship with God, but it does the exact opposite. Because you know who doesn't trust God? People who have been exploited by religious people. In my last church, uh, there was a, a father for, for a couple of my youth. He never came to church the whole time I was there. Um, but, the, but the mother did. And he used to come to church. And this is why he stopped coming. He made a business deal with someone in the church. And that business deal was shady. I mean, like, he lost tons of money. And, and the guy who was a, supposed to be a believer... he wasn't in the church when I was there either, the, the other side of this deal. Right? Took his money and used it for other things and spent it on himself. And he never recouped any of his losses. And he attributed that guy... As a representative of Christianity, and he gave up on the church, he renounced his faith, he told his daughters and his wife, "Look, I don't believe in Jesus anymore, because if that's what they do this guy was a, some sort of a leader, not an elder or a deacon of the church, but he had some leadership position in the church. If that's what they do. I don't need to be a part of that." And he left the church. Right? And I knew him. I met him at like events and stuff where his daughters were at and his son was at. But I never, ever saw him darken the door of the church because he was hurt by church people. This is what was going on at the temple. Every day people would go there and they would go with their $4, all that they had, right? And they would go and try to buy a couple birds and they couldn't even buy a sacrifice because they didn't have enough money because they were too poor for the religious people there to do what needed to be done. And every day people would leave that temple mount and they would be discouraged with God. And they'd see if that's what God is, I don't need that in my life. I'll do something else with my four bucks. I'll find another way to get through this thing right now because that isn't okay. And Jesus saw people constantly leaving the temple, walking away from there distraught and unable to, to really rationalize what was going on. And people, guys, we, we, we project, right? right what, what we see, we don't take it on ourselves, right? We project it on other people. Like, if that's what y'all do, I don't have any need for that. I don't have any need to go to that sort of a place if that's how people are. There's a caution here, right, for us 2,000 years later, right? We, we got to be careful not to be those people. Right? Not just to engage in shady business dealings with people, but to be a good representative, to be a good reflection of God's Word. Because you, if you claim to be a Christian, if, if that's a, a badge that you wear on yourself, if you're known as a believer in Jesus Christ, everything you do reflects on Jesus. I tell my kids this sometimes. Right, My last name is Higginbotham. There's not a ton of us. There's more than you think, but there's not a ton of us. And in a town like Rockdale, there's really not that many of us. If you go around and your last name's Higginbotham, though, eventually you'll be connected back to your daddy. Eventually. I grew up in Houston, Texas. Big city. Right? And, I, and people would are you related? Are you related to are you, No, no, no. And someone said, finally, are you related to Lewis Higginbotham? I said, that's my dad. Right? Eventually they'll connect you back to your father and the question is when they connect you back will you be found doing something that you want your dad to be connected to right do you honor that name like my, my last name i ask my kids to honor that last name that when, when when you get that last name to honor it because wherever you go you're going to carry that with you if you're a christian here today you, your name reflects jesus christ And when someone finds out that you're a believer in Jesus and when they connect you to him, are they going to see the truth about Jesus from you or are they going to see something else? Are they going to have a bad perception of who Jesus is because his children struggle sometimes? And I'm not saying not to struggle, guys. I try to struggle with you guys publicly. i let you know I don't have my life 100% figured out. I'm not perfect. I don't. I do not live the sinless life that I ascribe and try to do. I'm I'm a broken, crooked stick. But I try to reflect Jesus where I go. I try to reflect Him because I know whatever I do, I've got His name on me. So the temple was supposed to reflect that. It didn't reflect it well. And so, so Jesus goes in there and he turns over the tables and he, and he runs the people out and then he leaves. Right, The scribes and the Pharisees, they get upset. They want to destroy him, but they won't destroy him because they're scared because everybody loves him. Right, It's kind of delightful to see someone finally, like, imagine you're a poor person in the temple and then you got this guy over there flipping tables over yelling at everyone saying, why are you ripping people off? You're like, that's right, go get them. Right? Jesus was kind of a cult hero at that moment. He leaves town and wakes up the next morning. They're on their way back into Jerusalem to go back to the temple. Go back to this holy place again. They walk by the tree and Peter's like, hey, that's the tree you cursed and now it's dead. And Jesus is like, yeah. And more greater things can happen if you'll have faith and believe. Or if you'll have faith and believe greater things than this will happen for." You now, now this dead tree, right? Again, the tree is represented like kind of like an analogy for the temple. The temple was this place that was supposed to have the glory of God, and it, and it's ultimately it's going to be gone. It's going to be destroyed because it's been replaced by something else. When that tree dies and withers away, something's going to take its place. I don't know how long it takes for the tree to disappear. Something's going to take its place, and when that does, that new thing may take root and bear fruit and be fruitful. Jesus took the place of the temple. He himself, on his body, took the place of the temple. He said, I will be the holy place. I will be the one where worship is centered. I will be the one where everyone goes to and, and they find healing for the nations. And ultimately, I'm going to pass on that duty to you, church. You will be the ones where people can find hope and peace and love and grace because you will bear that out of your life. Greater things can happen if you place your faith in the right place. So is your faith placed in Jesus Christ? Is it placed somewhere else? Where, where do you have your faith? Right, Misplaced faith doesn't take you very far. But if I have faith that I can fly off the top of this roof, I promise you I will not fly far. Right? I've tried the walking on water. I told you this, right? I don't do it. I sink. I try. Almost every year I try. And every year I, I fail. Right? I, but... But, but if your faith is in the right spot, if it's in Jesus Christ, you can do great, great things. You can draw the nations to Jesus. You can see lives change and transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It happens through you trusting in Christ. So there's two things that we can get out of this passage. First thing is this. Are you a fig tree in leaf that looks good but is fruitless? And if you are, then you need to go to work, right? You need to find some way to begin to be productive. The way you produce, by the way, is not by working harder. Man, I'm going to do better. I'm going to, Matt said, be here at 3 o'clock to bag cookies. I'll be there. I'm going to bag cookies and pop popcorn. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do, I'm going to do. No, no, no. It comes down to the fact that if you're fruitless, that means there's a problem with you. And you don't fix you. Because you're the problem, and you can't fix it. So you go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I need you to work on me. There's another parable Jesus shares about a tree that isn't producing fruit. right? And the the owner of the garden comes to him and says, hey, rip this tree up. It's taking up soil, and it's not giving me anything. And the gardener says, hold on a minute. Give me one year. He digs around the base of the tree and he fertilizes the roots of the tree and he pours his life into the tree because he knows that that tree, if it's treated properly, if the roots are given the right sort of like maintenance and fertilizer, uh, that it will be fruitful again. Some of y'all are in that moment right now. You need to ask the gardener to come and to tend to your roots. You need to go and rely back on the thing that's the core center point of our faith, which is, is our knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. And so many of us have fallen out of love with God because we, we, we don't know who He is. Because we don't touch His Word anymore. I'm going to ask you to open God's Word this week, guys. Open it up. Fall back in love with Jesus. Let Him work on you. Like you. It's not about what you do. It's about what He'll do through you and for you. Some of y'all are fruitless trees. It's true. You know it. As you think about your life, you say, if Jesus was come to me... And to analyze my life and say, are you being fruitful? You'd say, no, I'm not. I'm not. The solution to that is to ask Jesus Christ to make you well again, because you're not well. Guys, I've been there. I, I'm not always well. Right? Repent. Go back to Jesus. and Ask him to make you well again. And then for others of us, we need to be careful about how we represent Jesus here today. Right, we may be bearing some degree of fruit, but we know that there's other times when we, we're, we're, we're not where we need to be. And people come to us, and, they, and they're looking for Jesus Christ, and instead of that, they get something else altogether different. And that's, that's you today, guys. That, that's a moment of repentance. God, I recognize I fall short. Help me. Help me to bear fruit consistently. When people come and don't want to see you, Lord, I want them to see you clearly, not to see me anymore. Guys, we're going to take a moment, we're going to to share the Lord's Supper today. The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus Christ, really, like three days after the cleansing of the temple. And as he he did that, right, he, he gave the Lord's Supper as a reminder to us, right, as a consistent reminder to us, that he gave everything he had for our sake. He gave his body, he gave his blood, he gave all that he had for our sake. And if we would come to Him in faith and believe in Him, that we would have newness of life again. So as we take the Lord's Supper today, I want you to remember who bought you with a price. And as you examine that, that, that fig tree analogy, what does He deserve from you on the back?